Welcome to McGonigal's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections. I'm KRTV KXLH anchor Tim McGonigal. Early in life, science wasn't in the cards for Dr. Renee Rejo Pera. What was in the cards was an excellent work ethic instilled by her mother growing up in rural Wisconsin, a mother who worked at hard labor jobs and simply hoped that her daughter could one day work in an office. Rejo Pera wasn't even sure she would go to college. She worked as a bookkeeper at an auto dealership out of high school before enrolling at the University of Wisconsin-Superior to become a business major. It was a class called Human Genetics for non-majors that sparked the scientific interest, and that would help pave the way for a journey that would lead her to get a master's in agriculture in Kansas, followed by a degree in biochemistry from Cornell in New York. From there, she went to MIT in Boston, and later made her way to San Francisco before being recruited to Stanford University. She also spent time as a vice president at Montana State University. While in California contemplating retirement, she got the call asking her if she was interested in the director job at McLaughlin Research Institute in Great Falls. It was an easy decision, and since March of 2021, she's led a group of dedicated scientists who perform some of the world's leading research on neurological diseases. I spoke with her recently about being just the fifth director in the Institute's nearly 70-year history and the first woman to hold a position, and the importance of women and girls entering scientific disciplines. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Renee Rejo Pera. Well, Renee, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Uh, before we get into your work here at McLaughlin Research Institute, uh, talk about uh, growing up and how, how you got on the pathway to, to science. Um, so I grew up in a small town called Iron River, Wisconsin. It has probably four or five hundred people in the winter and a few thousand in the summer. <laughs> so way up north in Wisconsin on the South Shore of Lake Superior. And um, I, I, I was the uh, youngest of six children and my mother worked as a cook in the morning at a bakery making donuts and then in an elementary school during the middle of the day and a diner at night. And I remember her often saying to me, Renee, make sure you have an office. And so when I actually um, was growing up, I thought I wanted to be in business or I won a, um, a championship for bookkeeping. And so after high school, I got a job as a bookkeeper at the local Ford dealership. Um, I was there for about six months or so, and I thought, boy, life is going to be long. <laughs> I was only 19 years old, and it already seemed like I'd been there for a very long time. Sure. So I went to the University of Wisconsin in Superior, and uh, it's about 30, 40 miles away. And Superior, Wisconsin is, I always say it should be the twin twin city of Great Falls, Montana. <laughs> very, very similar. Same size, couple refineries, okay. <laughs> um, and uh, a lot of grain uh, marketing. And I entered as a business major and I took a class called Human Genetics for Non-Majors and I just loved human genetics and that's how I got into science. Yeah, yeah, so uh, there, there were no real like role models uh, scientifically when you were growing up, no Marie Curie or anything like that? <laughs> not really and especially not women. Um, yeah. You know when I thought about scientists I always thought about Albert Einstein or Charles Darwin or mm -hmm. Um, you know, some of the um, people like Alexander Graham Bell, but I didn't really have role models. 
and I didn't really know that science was something that people did. It seemed like it was other people far away or whatever, and it didn't seem like it was something that I could do. But when I went to college, I then I saw some role models. I had great professors. It was a small college, but really nice professors who really cared about teaching. All right, and from, from college, uh, talk about the educational path and career path that mm. eventually led you to, uh, yeah. to Montana. So uh, after college, I um, looked around and there weren't any jobs. I had majored in yeah, genetics and biology, and there weren't any jobs in northern Wisconsin in science. And so I moved to Kansas, where I got a master's degree in agriculture, and I loved that, but um, I really learned that in Kansas that I loved research. And so I applied to Cornell University in New York and ultimately got into Cornell through talking my way in, <laughs> essentially. Um, and I uh, got a degree in biochemistry, molecular, and cell biology. From there I went to MIT in Boston, and my first job was in San Francisco. I was recruited to Stanford University by a man named Irving Weissman, who grew up here in Great Falls. And in fact, my husband had worked in the Weissman hardware store <laughs> when he was in Montana. And so that's how I began to learn a bit about Montana and fall in love with this particular place, which is where Irv did his internship. Yeah, yeah, and Irv, yeah, the, he's synonymous with the uh, McLaughlin Research Institute. Oh, he loves this place. And he passed that love on to the faculty and the staff and the students at Stanford that were in his institute. Yeah. Now you did spend some time as a vice president at Montana State University in Bozeman. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, tell, tell me uh, what, uh, what you did there and uh, how long you were there. Yeah, so as vice president of research we had uh, what's called research expenditures. That's how you measure how much research you have is how much money is spent on research. Of about 85, 90 million when I started, and we brought that up to 150 million uh, by the time I left seven years later. And what we focused on was mental health, on um, photonics, or how we see the world, and then in um, really looking at what are the big ideas that would change the um, fabric or improve the scientific atmosphere in Montana. What I found is that Montanans are naturally very, very inquisitive. And they're really good at starting up businesses and independent ways of thinking and um, prospering. And so tapping into that in Montana State University has been really important. But I think there's probably no greater uh, institute or example of the independence and the perseverance in Montana than the McLaughlin Research Institute. This place is 67 years old. On average, research institutes in the United States last about five years. And so we're way beyond uh, that. And so it's been a real joy to be able to look at the McLaughlin Research Institute and ask the question, why Why has it been able to survive yeah. so long? Well, I know a lot of people, they, they know that the McLaughlin Research Institute is here and they know that 
there's a lot of, some cutting edge research that's that's done mm -hmm. here. Uh, what exactly for those people that might not know exactly what goes on in here? What uh, what is the McLaughlin Research Institute? Um, well, it is uh, transitioned, but it's always been in genetics. So early on, it was in transplantation. So if you take um, skin from one uh, person or an organ from one person and want to transplant it to another, what causes acceptance or rejection of organs? And that was uh, studied by a guy named Ernst Eichwald. And Paul Eichwald, his son, is on our uh, board. And Irv Weissman actually did his research with him. Um, and so that's an immunology problem, because okay. we can immune reject uh, an organ if it isn't close enough to uh, our own identity. Um, and then from there, the um, institute began to focus on genetic models, animal models, primarily mice, and cellular models. Um, that would allow us to do things like understand the biology, but also screen for new drugs or uh, new ways of treating. And right now we are focused primarily on neurodegeneration, and that's Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and uh, prion diseases and dementias. And those are the largest healthcare problem in the United States. We have just gone through a um, or some people will say we're still in the pan a pandemic, but mm -hmm. um, there is, it is true that neurodegeneration is at epidemic proportions. The numbers of people that are um, being diagnosed with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and dementia continues to grow, primarily because we're living longer. Yeah. Has the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, how, how has that affected, if at all, the research that goes on? here? Um, so early on uh, it affected it in that remember early on people stayed home sure but we've come back to work and um, you know uh, when things are spiking we mask up and uh, but we continue to work it's um, a pleasure to be able to come to work every day and we stay a little bit distanced from each other and try to uh, practice you know, safe practices for uh, COVID-19, but we continue to work. Okay. Throughout the pandemic, uh, you know, we, we would see Dr. Fauci on TV and he would say the phrase, trust the science, when yeah. by him saying that, that meant probably some people didn't trust the science. Uh, so, yeah. so why is it important in your mind uh, now, during this time, for people to, to trust right. the science? Right. It is really important, and it's important for us as scientists to actually admit what we do not know. And so I think that <laughs> this COVID-19 pandemic has shined a light on how much we do not know, mm -hmm. as well as how much we have progressed. So the fact that there are mRNA vaccines, some people thought this happened really quickly. I've been working on mRNA <laughs> applications for 25 years, and so it wasn't quick mm -hmm. at all, but we knew a lot about um, mRNAs and vaccines. What we did not know was human behavior. We didn't really know very much about how the virus would be transmitted, how effective certain practices would uh, be. And so what you saw over the course of this pandemic was there was a shifting in the recommendations as more and more data came in. 
And that's how we generally do science, but we don't generally have such a big lens on <laughs> what we're doing. Um, but we see what we do an experiment, we see what happens, we revise what we think uh, the causes and what the data mean, and we do another experiment to show um, whether or not what we're assuming is right. And so science is really great in that we test new data all the time, and we test it as well as we can. Sometimes people can think that um, scientists want to band together, that they want to promote a certain idea, and nothing could be further from the truth. I would become much more well-known if I have a new idea all by myself <laughs> than if I band together with other people. And so we're constantly trying to be the person that proves something is wrong or that really finds the way that things really, really work. And so uh, it is important to trust the science, the science and the scientists. But you don't have to trust it too much because it will be tested and tested and tested by scientists. Okay. You're the uh, president and uh, just the fifth, fifth president or director of the president, McLaughlin yeah. Research mm -hmm. Institute. Explain your role uh, as president. Uh, yeah. what, what, do you, what do you do in that role? Well, I just finished a 529-page <laughs> grant. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was the, um, what's called the principal investigator of that grant. And what that means is we're trying to, or we are determining what it is that we want to do. So it's like a big strategic plan. This is where we're going. And so in this particular grant, it reflects who we are at the McLaughlin Institute. We have three major goals. The first is to support the next generation of scientists who are going to be doing research on neurodegeneration. And the second is to recruit additional scientists here at Great Falls to complement any gaps or areas that we need um, more coverage in. And the third is to build facilities that actually allow us to make new discoveries in neurodegeneration. So when we talk about neurodegeneration, I just want to put it in a financial kind of a realm. The cost of neurode treating neurodegeneration by the years 2050 to 2060, so not that far from now, will exceed $1 trillion. And that's about twice the entire healthcare budget of the United States. So it is a huge problem. And not only is it a huge problem financially, though, when we think about it or when we talk to people, I think nothing is feared more than neurodegeneration. Yeah. Even more than cancer or other types of diseases, people just really want to be um, intellectually present in their lives. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, the job of the president is to figure out where we're going, what we need, raise the resources, and um, determine if we're on the right path. So. Okay. so as president, you're still very actively involved in what goes on here. You're not just sitting behind a desk and signing your signature to stuff. No, <laughs> and because we're a small institute, we have to do, you know, I often say, you know, uh, we have to do many, many things. You know, I don't have a 
admini a huge administrative staff. You know, I write my own letters, <laughs> I sign my own documents, and that's somewhat different than even Montana State University. I had 175 people who were working for me. Wow. How many people work here at McLaughlin Research About Institute? 40. About 40. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And how many, uh, how many of them are researchers? Uh, About uh, 30 of them do research or take care of animals or sure. yeah, do indirectly. Or well, we mentioned you're just the fifth president uh, in the long history, 68 years, and you said that typically a lot of times research institutes are have a five-year life, but yeah. this one's 68 years, so you being just the fifth that's pretty elite company. Uh, yeah, what yeah. Uh, what does that mean to you to to be just the fifth president? You know, it's funny. Um, I was so I was sitting in Avila Beach, California. <laughs> I had moved there with my husband, and we were. I was thinking about um, you know, kind of sunsetting my career. Mm -hmm. Retiring, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which it's a hard word to even say, sure. but um, Jean Thayer called me and said, you know, Renee, um, we have an opening for the president director of the McLaughlin Research Institute, and would you be interested in um, moving back to Montana? And I said, Jean, I have to talk to my husband. So I hung up the phone, talked to my husband, Fred uh, Parent. And the next day we said, yeah, we'll be, we'll be there. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience to come back. I fell in love the first time with Montana based on all the things I'd heard. And this time I knew what I was getting into. <laughs> and I still really, really love it. And it's, it, uh, much of it has to do with the fact that Great Falls is so much like where I grew up. Yeah. So you're used to the, the winners and the below zero uh, yes. This is mild compared to where <laughs> I grew up. <laughs> we would get 10 or 12 feet of snow, and it yeah. was most um, the winter wasn't above zero. Right. Yeah. So, Renee, uh, just the fifth uh, president, but also the first wi woman president. Uh, yeah. How does that make you feel when, when you I'm think really about proud. Yeah. You know, I'm really, really proud. But we have really strong uh, women here. Um, Following the Great Recession, I think they call it, 2007 to 2009, um, there were some really rough years for biomedical research in the United States. The funding was incredibly low. Like the, uh, a person with a doctorate could write a grant and the chances of that grant getting funded were about 5%. And so the McLaughlin Institute went through some hard times but it was a group of seven or eight women that actually kept on coming in every day, um, kept the doors open, uh, and many times didn't even know if they were going to get paid. And I asked one of the women, I said, you know, um, how did you actually, you know, make it through those times? And, and she said, I just never really thought of going anywhere else. And so there was this perseverance that you just don't think of other possibilities. And so it's a real pleasure for me to be the president here. That is, the quality of the people in this institute is unsurpassed. I've been at Montana State University, at Stanford, the University of California system, and these, the quality of the folks here is extraordinary. And I mean that both in terms of perseverance, of showing up every day, but also scientifically, this is a pretty amazing place. 
And I think it's that independent spirit. You don't want to have the same idea as anybody else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're going to do, be doing some different things, you know. Okay. Well, February 11th is International Day of Women and Girls in Science. Uh, and I had a chance to, to talk with a couple of your uh, uh, female researchers here, and uh, they're very proud of what, what they've done, uh, and I'm sure you are too. Uh, what, uh, uh, wh why is it important to, to celebrate women in science and to, yeah. to encourage girls to, to, to take up the scientific fields? Yeah, it is really important to encourage girls to think about science. There's a couple reasons. The first is just from personal experience, it might take a little bit more to um, to relate to a girl that yes, she can be a scientist. Although today it seems like um, girls and boys may be more prone, may be more knowledgeable. They see more things on the internet. It still is hard to identify as a scientist. Um, and I think it's important for us to um, show people that you can be somewhat normal <laughs> and be a scientist. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it provides an example. But the second reason why it's important to have um, girls in science or to show women in science is that uh, we do different science. And so there's been quite a large number of studies that have been done to show that we're interested in different problems uh, very often, or we might address problems in a different way. So for example, many, many of the uh, healthcare problems in the United States, even just within a family, a woman once said to me after hearing me, just an older woman, after hearing me give a talk, she, go, she said, you know, all my life I've been the healthcare provider in our family. When the children are born, when people die, when we need to go to the doctor, all of these times are um, times when women are very often coordinating the family care. And so how we understand healthcare is really important to the larger society as well. Okay. Uh, McLaughlin Research Institute, it's been here for 68 years and hopefully it's here for Another 68 more, more and plus, I guess. Yeah. Uh, how is it doing uh, financially? How are you funded? Is it uh, through government grants? Uh, through, I know there's some personal yeah. gifts and donations that to keep it yeah. afloat. Is that is yeah. how does it how does it stay afloat? So about 30 percent, or about a third of our funding is philanthropic, and we uh, hired a new uh, director of development, and that's an important uh, avenue of support for the uh, institute. About a third of it is through contracts and grants from the federal government, primarily uh, the National Institutes of Health. And about a third of it is what is called contract research organization work or CRO work. And what that is, is we do um, studies for pharmaceutical companies or for other universities that they want, uh, that they commission us essentially to do. And so that model over the years has um, been somewhat, has been very similar except that our interactions with pharmaceutical companies and industry have increased over the last five years or so. Okay. As you look ahead uh, to the future, do you, do you foresee or do you think there will be a cure for some of these 
diseases that you guys are working on, Alzheimer's, yeah. some of the dementias, Parkinson's, do you, do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I see some really important things happening. Um, there's a couple things that are going to happen here at the McLaughlin Institute. One is that we are the research institute for the Turo College of Osteopathic Medicine. So we're partners with Turocom Montana and the physicians that are being trained through that system will do their research here in the McLaughlin Institute. And so we're going to be um, moving also in diversifying our funding model to include clinical trials. And there are now about 500 clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease. And the number of clinical trials each year goes up and so it's almost like you get a set of darts and the more darts you have the more likely you are to hit the bullseye and I think that that's where we are in Alzheimer's disease right now. Um, as you probably are very much aware, uh, Alzheimer's disease is associated with aging and so we're beginning to understand how neurons age, how they fire different. It's actually really interesting to me when I think about it. Um, as we get older, we have a process that's called cognitive decline is associated with our neurons, so they fire a little slower. But, the, but we make up for that in uh, ways that are really interesting too. So as I've gotten older, perhaps I've gotten more intelligent because I've gotten more experience. And so our experience actually outweighs our cognitive decline. And so there's a number of avenues that we think you can actually address Alzheimer's that are more behavioral as well. Okay. Dr. Renee Rejo-Para, thank you so much for, for thank taking time. Thank you. It has been a real pleasure to be here. And thank you for coming over to the McLaughlin Institute. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Renee Rejo-Para, the president and director of the McLaughlin Research Institute in Great Falls. You can learn more about the organization and their research on their website at www.mclaughlinresearch.org. And you can subscribe to McGonagall's Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts, and I invite you to leave a review of the show. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. I'll be back soon with another interesting guest with a Montana connection. Until then, for McGonagall's Chronicles, I'm Tim McGonagall.